0: Welcome! You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Marchalero, and this week my guest is Professor of Physics, Dr. Stefan Alexander from Brown University. Dr. Alexander, welcome to the show. May I call you Stefan? Absolutely. For listeners, Stefan is a theoretical physicist specializing in my favorite subjects, cosmology, particle physics, and quantum gravity. String theory and loop quantum gravity, to be exact. He received his Bachelor of Science in 1993 from Haverford College and his Ph.D. in 2000 from Brown University. He also explores interconnections between music, physics, mathematics, and technology through recordings, performances, teaching, and public lectures. We will get into that in the second half of the show. But first, I'm very fascinated by your early career. You came to the United States as a youth and grew up in the Bronx, and I want to hear the linkage between how that started in your path towards getting interested in science what inspired you
1: uh, yeah that, thanks for asking that question um well i mean i grew up in the bronx in new york and the part of bronx i the part of the bronx i grew up in was um a very um you know culturally mixed neighborhood i mean um we were the first. Um, um, black family to move into At that time and all Like an Italian, Irish, Polish neighborhood And soon after the neighborhood Was um, filled out With like people from Latin America You know, Puerto Rico, Cuba Dominican Republic From India, Jamaica um, So that kind of environment I think Lended itself because I was just exposed To so many different ways of life And cultures and, um, you know, break dancing and, you know, the rap music, all that stuff is really happening in my neighborhood in the Bronx in the 80s. And I think that, you know, looking back at it, I think that there was something about that, you know, the variation of experiences that I had firsthand, um, you know, just contact with impacted my curiosity. I was just very curious about things. I, you know, wanted to... I was pursuing, you know, probably a career, first a career in music because I came from a musical family. But even there, the curiosity started with, well, how do instruments work? Or at the time, people were using drum machines to make hip-hop beats. Um, Like, I don't know if many of you who know DJ DJ Jazzy J is, or uh, my friend uh, Richard Pearson, um, who became known as a young lord. He produced for Puff Daddy or P-Diddy. Uh, Biggie Smalls and you know mm-hmm. Tupac Four and the Black Eyed Peas and so these are guys I grew up with and um, I wanted to understand how does a, the the you know the beat machine what is, how how is it that this box and the electronics in this box create create these beats and these sounds and so this this kind of curiosity and was a part of it. Did um, your father
0: play had, a role in it? You said he was a musician. Did he also urge you into curiosity about things?
1: Yeah, so my parents definitely, you know, and this is an important thing, even though we were poor and my dad was a cab driver, my mother was a nurse, um, even even though that situation did exist, it didn't stop them from, from um, I don't know, bringing certain books home, or certain hmm. Things and and just really feeding my curiosity and not encouraging me to be curious and encouraging me and not penalizing me as as strange but you know rewarding me for for this for for these curiosities and also they, we didn't limit this to necessarily like this had had anything to do with school it was kind of part of our you know being living in my household there were books available and things that. Um, and even the, the the comic books that I, you know, I grew up with, you know, Marvel comic books. Um, I, I found those comic books actually really excite my, my imagination and the music, the hip hop music. But then I was also lucky because even though I went to a very populated high school in New York City, D. Wickland High School, we had about 6,000 students from all over the city. Um, we had teachers that were really devoted to, to, um, to our education, my math and my physics teacher.
0: There was one Mr. teacher that was uh, played a particular role, was it, or Mr. Kaplan?
1: Yeah, Mr. Kaplan was my physics teacher. He played a big role because, again, never, not once did he assume any of his students, or including myself, were limited in, in our capacity to go really far. So even though we were at that school, public high school in New York City, he allowed us to, and encouraged us to dream big, even though we were starting low on the you know on the t- on the totem pole he knew and expected us to go as far as as um, we felt we can go and he encouraged me he realized that I had a good physical intuition like my ah. intuition physics was good and he said you know you know the intuition is is really the, the you know the, is at the heart of being a good physicist you're pressing um, all
0: my buttons here you had an environment where it was no surprise that anybody of any particular background or ethnic origin would be interested in science. You had a teacher who was uh, enthusiastic about everybody's ability and sky's the limit. No holdbacks, no critical analysis or pushback on students because of who they are. And you had a natural curiosity and a good learning environment from your parents. Wow! Bingo!
1: Right. Now, of course, in the shadows of that, as you probably very well know, it wasn't that the environment was all, you know, was far from perfect. And, and, and that also added because, you see, uh, Mr. Kaplan and my teachers and, you know, and other, you know, they said there's there's a pathway. There's a way out of this. And it isn't just becoming a dealer, a drug dealer or even an athlete And all. By the way, being an athlete and an entertainer, are all good things. But they were like, you know, you can actually, there's a, you can go to, you, you get a scholarship and if you work hard, there's a pathway, you can become a scientist, you can, there's a way out of this. That's and that so to me important. was also very appealing, that I wanted to get out of my predicament. And I mean, somebody I saw a lot of my friends you. going to work at, you know, go, having these menial jobs and I didn't want that yeah. that, that path for myself. And so that coupled with this path, with this way, pathway out was important too. When somebody believes in you and they tell you they believe in you can change your life. Yes. Yes, that's right. Uh, and when you say they believe in me, they, they kind of, that was genuine. You can, uh, young people, we can detect. Young people can see when somebody is serious in their belief in you and not just saying it.
0: Did you develop any science heroes along the way that were notable? Mine was Richard Feynman and Albert Einstein.
1: Yeah, well I had three. Um Richard Feynman, of course, Einstein and Tony Stark, the physicist that built the Iron Man suit. <laughs> My third one was Carl Sagan. Okay, yeah, he's a he's a good one. Yeah, yeah. He's great. Now unfortunately there weren't many there or any that looked like me, right? Or I was from, you know, they weren't I didn't have access at that point. To role models to uh, other scientists and other great scientists at that time, one of the things that I did get interested in was I I I was started reading all these books about ancient Africa and like you know, you know the contributions of science and to the pyramids and all these things. I was fascinated by that because as a young person, I was secretly I was seeking out, you know, and asking the question why aren't many um, why aren't there any out there that that look like me. Of course, I was, I was a 16-year-old kid. L- I later on re- come to realize that there are, and they're out there. Yeah, like Jim Gates. He's been on the
0: show. Huh? Jim Gates. He's been on the show.
1: That's right. I later on discovered Jim. I've, I got to know Jim in my sophomore year in college.
0: Cool. Well, when you got into a bachelor of science degree at Haverford, you know, that's not too hard for somebody who's pretty smart. And then did you realize that you were on your way at that point towards a phd and you were going to do research or was there
1: some hesitation no way there was i did not realize that what i did know was um, um i was but the physics the physics major was interesting to me and it was relative to the compared to the other potential majors was the easier the easier choice because I, I didn't have to read a lot of books and write a lot of papers. And however, you know, the workload was tremendous there. And so so physics was a convenient major for me, but it actually um, was challenging because you know a lot of my peers. This is the first time they saw a black kid doing physics, right? And many of them from <laughs> affluent backgrounds in you know Exeter and all these great schools with perfect SAT scores and um, you know like ten AP credits and. They, here I am and they're in the same classes. And I think many of them, well, I, you know, many of them did not really want to engage me because they didn't feel I had anything to contribute to the study sessions. So they projected a lot of, um, you know, lowered expectations on me. And um, these days, students call these things microaggressions. Uh, I didn't have a vocabulary for it back in the, in the late eighties. Um, so that was interesting. So doing Haverford, I did major in physics, but because of those experiences, I, I, I asked myself, why would I want to continue a career where, where these same guys, right, will end up being my colleagues and treat me like a dog? So I didn't want to be in that kind of, I didn't, that kind of environment, um, as a, even if I were to make it in physics. So I wasn't considering physics as a profession. That did Very change. Interesting. So you kind of got some master's degrees along the way, and kind of I figured that out, huh? Yeah, well what saved me was I I got a little research job my junior year at Carnegie Mellon to work with this this great guy, Mark Kreider, who was actually the inventor of the optical drive. And um, um and he was the one that really opened my doors. And another professor, Lyle Ruloffs, um, to to that, that research is very different than what happens in the classroom. That basically your research project is like your own thing, right? You get there's this you know, it's you're not taking an exam. You're not, you know, in the library hunched away trying to do something. You're exploring. You're 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 creating new things. You're creating knowledge. You you make mistakes, and but you no, know, nobody's there to lash you and lash out at you. Um, and you own that mistake, and you transform that mistake into new knowledge. And and you got paid. And you got paid for it. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> this is you know, this is exactly. Like me in the attic of my room, you know, um, sort of wandering away and um, and you know it, engaging in my my, my curiosity and I, you know curiosity-driven research, and so it was that that made me want to um, pursue the graduate program in physics. Got a tough question for you. Oh, so
0: every graduate student I've been through this in physics wonders whether they have what it takes. They stumble through the classes. They, you know, encounter quantum mechanics. They have a tough professor along the way. uh, Their thesis advisor may not be the most encouraging person on the planet, or they might be. And you kind of have your doubts along the way about whether the PhD is going to pay off and whether you have the chops to, you know, go toe-to-toe with everybody else. How did that go for you? When did you figure out that you had it?
1: Yeah. Um, it, well, I would say that, um, I still feel like, I still feel like I don't, you know, I still have my days where I feel like I don't have what it takes and I'm a professor. Oh, so you do, <laughs> you <haven't laughs> <I'm, now. laughs> so, uh, I you know, like uh, it's sort of like, you know, um, an, an intrinsic kind of, um, self-imposed humility, um, or, you know, always slipping on banana peels and yeah, realize, yeah. but, um, another thing I, but that did happen was when I started, when I went to grad school, I'll just give you an example. One time there was an exam that everyone felt everyone else failed. Okay. It was that difficult. It was our graduate um, quantum mechanics class, right? Merzbacher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, That's no, we use um, Sakurai, but yeah, we, we, oh, we, okay. we, we, to Mertzbacher. Um, um, yeah. That's as, a tough book. Yeah. 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 Um, it's a good book, though, right? You agree? Is it it, is. I, I, yeah, or, it is. Everybody used it in my day. You use it in your day as well. Um, well I'm just curious, what was your favorite subject in quantum mechanics when you took it?
0: Um, I struggled with quantum mechanics. Uh, my, my bent was more towards general relativity and curved space and uh, wave propagation. So that's what I worked in.
1: Oh, like gravitational waves?
0: Yeah, I worked on the solution to the wave equation and the Schwarzschild metric.
1: Beautiful. That's that's so relevant stuff.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know that it's been actually solved in a a closed form. It may be done on a computer, but it was a long time ago, and it's challenging. Yeah, my my thesis advisor was into optics and radiation, and so I kind of fell in with him, and where our loves were compatible, and he was encouraging. That plays a big role. I had a physics professor talk to me about something you mentioned, and that is that I had good physics intuition. I want to get into that in the second half of the show, because we're going to talk about mathematics and
1: physics. Absolutely. Yeah. But go, yeah, so in my first year of grad school, just giving this exam, everyone took this exam, and all the graduate students shared the same room. We all had a desk. And I overheard in the corner of the room, one of the students say, and I was the only black at that time, graduate student in my program. Um, and I overheard one of the students, one of my classmates in the back of the room. He didn't know I would, I heard him. He goes, he goes, I knew I, I, knew I probably did horrible in this exam, but at least I know I didn't do as bad as Stefan <laughs> <All right>. So, <laughs> so, so when I heard that, I was like, well, it looks like all my classmates thinks that I'm like, they think that pretty much I am, you know, the worst student and, and they just had this, this, this assumption about me so I think that I had to very quickly come to terms with just knowing that many of the people in my environment of my peers are just not going to have the highest opinion of me for whatever reason from social conditioning to whatever we can um, ascribe to these presumptions. Oh, that don't, people, feel, like,
0: don't feel bad because it happens to a lot of people you're not the only one Everybody struggles yeah. with that challenge about their self-esteem and their acceptance and their uh, ability to succeed. It's a difficult well, challenge for
1: every graduate student. It is, but it's, and it's especially a challenge if you're different and you're, 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 you're not part of that that norm, you know, of what society projects. Right. You know, a scientist to look, talk, and act like right. So, um, so I immediately um, did not have to ever prove. Um, to any of my classmates or even my professors, whether or not I was good or not, because I really came to accept that they didn't have the highest opinion of me for whatever reason. Okay, so because of that, I did physics and um, for more for other reasons, regardless of how well I did with the grades and that kind of stuff. I, it was mostly curiosity driven, and and I came to the conclusion I was just going to remain in graduate school. Until either they kicked me out or mm-hmm. or I was done learning what I need to learn, and I was just going to use that degree and do something to make a living. Um, I always knew that a physics degree would could help me get a you know a, a job elsewhere absolutely but the good news was there was this one professor who i didn't know who he was, but he was very peculiar he's aware he looked like a mafia guy i mean he had like a he wore fancy Italian suits. And as you know, and uh, be, be, ha, having being a physicist, you know that um, that we physicists have the stereotype of not being the best well-dressed people or caring about appearance <laughs> stereotype. This guy was the exact opposite. He drove a fancy car. He, he wore shades, like really cool shades, slick back mm-hmm. hair, wavy hair. He wore these fine Italian suits and he would play really great classical music in this huge office, and he was kind of an enigma in, in the terms of who, what he put himself out to be. And even during the um our colloquium, you know, our department, like colloquia, uh, when speakers would come out, he would sit in front of a room and he would ask these weird, like baby questions almost. And I, I said, we used to think about the students, like, what's this guy saying? This guy makes it, say like, he's not asking anything fancy, right? Yeah, so, you know, he, Turns out that this guy was Leon Cooper, the Nobel Prize winner, the guy that co-discovered superconductivity. And he saw something in me for whatever reason and took me on to be his Ph.D. student. That'll do it. Yeah. yeah there's no question about it. Once
0: your thesis advisor embraces you and likes you and appreciates you and feels like
1: uh, you, you what it takes, you will graduate with your Ph.D. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, he definitely... You know, he's a, that's a person that, you know, solved an almost 50-year-old problem that even Einstein couldn't solve and Feynman couldn't solve. So, he was certainly a very special physicist, and it was a real, I would say, confidence booster to kind of have, to, you know, just learn physics from him um, and have him really train me um, to become who I am today. I eventually left his field and went into cosmology and then had another advisor, Robert Brandenberger. But learning from Leon Cooper how to really think about physics and how to really, what's really behind the equations was really special. Well, thanks for taking us through that. In the second half of the show, I want to talk to you about some science things
0: and music in your book. But first, it's time for a commercial break, folks. We'll be back in 60 seconds. I'm chatting with Dr. Stephan Alexander of Brown University. Stay with us. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI, CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. Built using the most up-to-date hardware and a next-generation network backbone, Linode allows users to comply with in-country data protection requirements while taking advantage of all of Linode's technology and tools. The goal is to maximize the benefit you receive from your cloud by making it cost-effective to deploy robust compute, storage, and networking services that meet your ever-changing performance needs. Featured are a native SSD storage, a 40-gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. Pick from any of 10 worldwide data centers. And pay for only what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. 24 by 7 live customer support is always just a phone call away. You'll be able to deploy, maintain your infrastructure simply, and cost-effectively. Plus, Linode's tools make it easy to provision, secure, monitor, and back up your cloud. To learn more, visit linode.com slash BGM. That's L-I-N-O-D-E dot forward slash B-G-M. All new customers receive a $20 credit. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. We're back. I'm chatting with Dr. Stefan Alexander, professor of physics. So I've got some questions for you I want to hear your opinions about. Um, you're notable as a jazz musician, and we talked about your music interest in the first half of the show. Music is based on mathematics. Is, is that an, is there an outward manifestation of the mind of the scientist from an internal mathematics perspective and, and synthesis with music? I think you suspect there is, and you've written a book about it. Tell me more.
1: Yeah, well, going back to you know the ancient intuitions of Pythagoras himself, um, who, as many know, is uh, responsible for the Pythagorean theorem. Well, I mean, uh, and he also um, was a person that um, is known for the for originating our Western musical scale based in the vibration of strings. Um, so even going way back to that, to you know, to um, a whole parallel history of Scientists and musicians. Um, there's a, a, a book by Peter Pesic, a friend of mine, it's called Music and the Making of Modern Science. That's all about, like, even the scientific tools that were influenced by musical intuition and musical input. Um, so, yeah, there's a long parallel history of this. Um, but in my case, um, I, what I wanted to explore was the connection between modern physics and music, and in particular, jazz music. And I think that, yeah, so that's that's kind of where I was, you know, coming in, into that tradition of the connection between mathematics, science, and music.
0: Do you have to be a good musician to be a
1: good physicist? Like Einstein played the violin and Feynman played the bongos. Oh, that's a really good question. I think you're the first person that really asked me the question. And even though there are con- conceptual and even mathematical connections between these two um, subjects, these two disciplines, um, one doesn't uh, imp- being good in one doesn't imply the other and vice versa <laughs> so you can be a great mathematician and, music, uh, and be a horrible musician and a great musician and be a horrible you know but not really care or be, um, in, or be good at um, one of the scientific disciplines or mathematics um however you can also be b- good at both um so yeah that's an interesting thing and i sometimes wonder why um, I don't have any answers to that. I am I I feel like I'm a I'm I'm okay at both.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh you told uh, Dr. Brian Keating on his uh into the into the impossible podcast that if I recall correctly um, mathematics can't really account for all the insights uh that one might have into science. That the in- science intuition as we've talked about before Plays a role. I want to ask you about that. So, yeah. as physicists, like, we sense we have yeah. a certain intuition. We can't quite f- put our finger on where it comes from, whether it comes from the music or talent of our brain or the mathematics engine of our brain.
1: Yeah, first of all, I hundred percent agree with um, with with Brian, Doctor Brian Keenan. Um and um, you know, I think that, like, for example, and I I forget what chapter in his book Losing the Nobel Prize he talks about. His experience of how his intuition for developing the polarimeter for, for what to become the bicep experiment and now the Simons Observatory. Um, but in my case, I would say the way I like to put it is let's just say I have, let's say that I come up with some new mathematical equation for a physical insight I have, right? And let's say I discovered mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Say I was Feynman and I discovered the path integral, the equation for the Feynman path integral, right? Right. What is the mathematics of that? <laughs> what is the mathematics of that intuition itself, of the, intu- of the process of that intuition? We don't have it, right? Well,
0: so, let me propose something to you. I was thinking about this before the show. You know, chess grandmaster. Mm-hmm. You know, chess is based on mathematics and geometry. And a chess grandmaster has some sort of mathematics and geometrical engine in their brain that they can tap into. if they tap into it incorrectly they make blunders and they lose their games Mm -hmm. if they tap into that mathematics and geometric engine correctly then they win but if you ask the grandmaster how he comes up with his next move he says it just occurs to me yes and so maybe that's the same thing with the physicist we have a mathematics and physics engine in our brain that we tap into with some people doing it better or worse than other people and that uh, and you tap into that brain like your next chess move, and out pops a mathematical theorem, or an in, or physical insight that produces the theory. Yes, and and, uh, and there you have
1: it. Yes, yes, um, yes. I mean, I think Roger Math- mathematical physicist Roger Penrose calls that process um, that something that transcends axiom that actually transcends is not even not even computable. <laughs> <laughs> right right but so the quantum, quantum, quantum mechanical aspects of it in the brain
0: too you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah so that's something important for young physicists to understand is how they arrive at things mathematics explicitly with pencil and paper or on their model on the supercomputer may not be everything that they need to to think about deeply about science and
1: physics that's right i mean mathematics is a, is a great tool and it's one of the many languages, it's one of the, the most efficient and um, effect, uh, very effective language so far that allowed us to make progress and even clean up and, and codify and organize um, physics. But it's we're not limited. What physicists do, at least I work in theoretical physics, what, what we do is that uh, we have other gimmicks, you know, thought experiments, we have intuition, we have mental visualizations, even embodying things, embodiment. Like, you know, I play the saxophone and sometimes I embody things in my music right, that I can't even put in words that help, that gives me um, new portals, new ways of um, thinking about a physics problem. And it's something that I, it's not, Not. it's a non-verbal thing. It is the act of picking up my saxophone and playing it, <laughs> it is the act of, um, Of you know, it's a, a strategy I use also for probing in, peering into some new physical ideas. Um, some people go on runs some people have different strategies um, and I think that those things are also essential if you're dealing with the unknown, if you're doing research which is different than refurbishing or, or regurgitating um, known facts in physics So I want to ask you some philosophical
0: questions Oh, um, that I'm not at but let's go go for it Okay, so string theory has presented us with some problems First of all, the mathematics was really tough And then when Edward Witten got through the mathematics, along with others, more notable uh, scientists, we figured out that there were multiple manifestations of string theory. And then worse, we found out there were some untestable tenets. Mm -hmm. Uh, Have we reached the limits of what we can do with our current mathematics? Do we need a new kind of mathematical thinking? Like when Einstein got into trouble with general relativity, Riemannian geometry came along just in time for him. Yeah. Are we at that point now where we needed something new to invent a new way of representing the universe in a mathematical way so that we don't have these terrible problems of string theory?
1: Yeah. So I would say that, um, no, the answer is no. We we have, I believe, scratched the surface even with string theory. And I think what string theory is doing, and that's the program of string theory, um, um, you know, I've engaged, I've written some papers and published some papers in string theory. Um is important, and we need to still um, move in that direction of trying to unveil the the, the the deep connection that string theory has with this, with new mathematics, and um, including the, the you know the complexity of string theory, um, and the directions that string theory we're gonna, is going to continue to take us in. However, we shouldn't limit ourselves to only string theory. There are other ideas out there. There are like other tools. Loop quantum there. gravity, right? I want to ask you about that. Um, you know that that um, that may um, um, lead us into a di- into um, different vistas in the landscape of theories. So loop
0: quantum gravity is a alternative competes with string theory. And you look at both. Can yes, you kind I of ex- explain us to us in a minute or so? <laughs> Kind of a thumbnail sketch of the, the fundamental difference with loop quantum gravity. It, 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 from my reading, it doesn't seem to present the staggering issues of string theory.
1: Yeah, so they both have their strengths and their weaknesses. Um, one, I mean, string theory is a lot more developed. There are not many people working on string theory than loop quantum gravity. Um, but in a nutshell, string theory falls into the class of theories where you don't. So yeah, these are both theories that try to unite. Einstein's theory of general relativity with quantum physics. Right. Uh, both quantum theories of gravity. String theory tries to do a lot more. It tries to unify with everything, all the forces. But what string theory, one of the strengths of string theory is that you start with a quantum mechanical theory with no gravity. And then what happens when you look at now the quantum mechanics of these vibrating strings, as part of this sort of vibrational spectrum of the string, and I say spectrum, I mean the different ways that the string can vibrate. Mm you know, it pop, out pops out from those equations. Einstein's theory of general relativity, actually. Gravity comes out naturally as an emergent phenomenon of a string with no gravity. So you start a string, quantum mechanics, and then out pops gravity. Now, what pops out is more than gravity. It's, you know, you get gravity in 10 dimensions, not gravity in four dimensions, and then you have to worry about how to get back our four-dimensional world, in a nutshell. Luke quantum gravity is a different approach Loop quantum gravity says we start with general relativity as a theory of gravity, and we try to quantize that theory. And out pops these loops, okay? Uh. Uh, These are loops of, you remember in general relativity, you can think about that space and time. Space, you think about space, can be warped. I can imagine taking a piece of space and warping it into like a tube of flux, like a, like a magnetic flux, for example, like a, like a garden hose. I can squeeze like a wormhole almost. I can imagine squeezing pieces of gravitational field into these flux. Those flux I can turn into like little donuts or hula hoops. Those are the hoops. Those are the loops in loop quantum gravity that, that get quantized. They come in discrete packets, um, quantum jumps of these loops. And they could weave into a fabric, that, that, that's the idea. And that this fabric should we expect to become, like when you look at you know, um, a fabric of a, and, and a piece of clothing, very close up, you see the weaves of the, of the threads. Those are like the loops. And as I zoom away, that becomes space, the warp space. So, so that's, that's the sort mar- of like the quantization okay. of space time. That's right. Interesting. But again, loop quantum gravity has its problems, um, and it, um, and so that's why there's research in both fronts up till today, and you know people are trying to make progress in both fronts. Some people, like my friend and colleague Lee Smolin, believe that loop quantum gravity and string theory are kind of interconnected. That one day we'll find that they're actually different sides of a, of some more meta theory that includes um, both loop quantum gravity and string theory. That sounds like a good hunch yeah yes I, I read
0: books by Lee Smolin he's great yeah he is great so but we're running out of time we only have a few minutes left and I want to ask you one more question something that's very intriguing to me one of the specialties for your research is to try to figure out what happened at and before the big bang how can we know what happened before the big bang can you kind of fill us in a little bit about how to approach that subject
1: yeah, that's a great question. That's another good, you picked the right question. Something I, I continue to work on with my, my students um, and my, my research group. Well, there are two approaches to this so far. One is you're in trouble if, if you say that time itself was created at the Big Bang, because then you have to talk about what it means um, to talk about events where time is not operational anymore as a concept or even as a, a mathematical tool. Um, There, you seem to be in the realm of theories that we call topological field theories. Anyway, meaning that there's no dynamics, there's no change. And so that's one direction. Um, Another direction is actually time had, that the universe was eternal in the past, and that we, our expanding epoch, you know, that emerged from the so-called Big Bang was really not a singularity that the universe emerged from, but was one of many um, epochs of Big Bang. So, so, our universe expanded, then contracts, and then emerged as another expanded and a contract, and this is called a cyclic universe. So, um, the idea that the universe went through these oscillations or cycles of um, many um, expansions and contractions, expansions and contractions. Are there any remnants of that effect that we can detect that might prove the theory? Yes, some people are looking into that. Some people are thinking that maybe um, the, our, if you think of our universe as um, a daughter universe, that the parent universe that our universe emerged from, right, um, there may have been certain catastrophic events as that parent universe collapsed into this so-called big crunch, and some signal or some event survived, mm-hmm. okay, out of the universe. And we might want to look for that signal in the sky. And so people are including, um, you know, I have some ideas about that, um, that it could be that dark matter, this thing called dark matter, may be a result of matter leaking in from Ooh, the past. That's interesting. The interesting. I haven't heard that before. Fascinating. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So it's like wrong, but. That's what we do. We, we you know, we keep trying wrong ideas until we get the right one. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, we're out of time. That went fast.
1: Oh, time flies. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing with me. Is there any closing thoughts that you want to add? And uh, how can listeners contact you if they wish?
1: Well, they can um, they, they can just Google. Um, I would say contact me at my um, webpage, um, page, com. That's one way dot Alexander.com um, And you know You can um, Find all sorts of interesting things Including my book And my upcoming book I have a, a new book That will be coming out soon Oh a so, new one In addition to yep. the Jazz of Physics That's right
0: What's the title, a, a, of a title?
1: Yeah it's called Fear of a Black Universe And the subtitle is An Outsider's Guide to the Future of the Universe
0: all right. Well, uh, if you send me a link to that for the forthcoming publication, I'll add it to the show notes.
1: I'll be more than happy. Thank you.
0: All right. Stefan, thank you for joining me. And th- thank you for telling me the story of your career and how you worked through getting your PhD and your research. It's been fascinating. Thank you very much for being on background mode.
1: Well, thanks for having me. And thanks for your wonderful questions. Folks, you've been listening to John Marchalero
0: and Dr. Stefan Alexander, physicist on the Mac Observer's background mode. We'll see you again next week.